You're listening to Comedy Central. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm Trevor Noah. Today is Wednesday, the 2nd of December, which means there's only 49 days left until Trump is no longer president and starts selling national secrets on his OnlyFans account. Anyway, coming up on tonight's show, the queen has the vaccine, why black people can't buy homes, and Michael J. Fox will be joining us on the show. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's kick things off with the coronavirus pandemic. You know, it's the reason why our nostrils aren't virgins anymore. Today, the world hit a major milestone as Great Britain became the first country to officially approve a fully tested vaccine. So big congratulations, Britain. It's amazing how much you can get done when you don't waste time combing your hair. And you know, this is really, really great news for the world, unless Britain decides to use this opportunity to get revenge. So it turns out we've gotten the vaccine and we'll be handing it out to all of our colonies. All of, oh, oh, that's right. You didn't want to be colonies anymore. Oh, look at that. I guess more vaccine for me. Oh, ah, oh, how you like that now, India? So safety and precaution is fantastic, but there is one country who might be taking their precautions a little too far. Belgium is putting a four-person limit on holiday parties during the coronavirus pandemic. Officials say all gatherings must be held outdoors in a yard or garden, and only one guest will be allowed to enter the house to use the bathroom during the entire party. If you really have to go to the toilet, there will be nothing else to do but return home, said a government spokesperson. Whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. Only one person at the party is allowed to use the bathroom? That is a terrible idea! For starters, how do they decide who gets to be the designated bathroom user, huh? Does the host tell you in advance? Do they regulate your nog intake? Or do they just decide based on what you ate? And you know the worst part about not being able to use the bathroom is? You lose your excuse for bailing on a conversation. That's the only reason you go to a bathroom at a party. Now you're just gonna have to be honest. Okay, well, thank you, thank you, yeah, I'm, I've gotta go. No, I, I don't have to use the bathroom. I just don't wanna talk about your kids anymore. Yeah, I, I hate them right now. I don't even know them. Of course, it's at least possible to practice social distancing at a garden party. You can at least try but it's much more difficult at a sex party. So when authorities in Belgium discovered that people were throwing an orgy in violation of the lockdown, police were sent to break it up. But that's when the real scandal began. A Hungarian member of the European Parliament has resigned after breaking lockdown rules by attending what's been described as a gay sex party in Brussels. Josef Shaya, who has previously backed anti-LGBT legislation in Hungary, admitted attending the party, which was broken up by police. The prosecution in Brussels have simply said that they were there raiding a party which appeared to be breaking coronavirus uh, lockdown restrictions. There are also reports in the Bulgarian media that he tried to run away from the party by climbing down a drain pipe and that uh, he was then caught by the police in the street. Damn! I can't believe a homophobic politician was caught at a gay sex party going down a drain pipe and then he tried to escape. High five! And by the way, being at an illegal sex party when the police storm in must be so awkward because you don't even realize it's a real police raid until it's too late. 
Think about it. You probably just assumed that somebody ordered stripper cups. Oh, yes, officer. I have been a really naughty boy. Wow, real handcuffs. You take this seriously. <laughs> but yes, my friends, once again, another anti-gay politician has been caught in a gay sex scandal. Which, by the way, there's nothing scandalous about gay sex. The scandal is that they said, we're anti-gay, gay is bad, and turns out they were doing it. And honestly, part of me feels bad for these politicians because clearly they've lived in a society that has made them so terrified of who they are and they hate themselves and the people that they go to these extreme lengths when they don't need to. Half the time, it's not about family values. They just don't want somebody dating their ex. But let's move on to the latest news from outgoing president, Donald Junk Food Trump. Because his plan to stay in the White House is not going smoothly. His lawsuits are failing. He hasn't been able to hide in the vents. And now one of his most loyal supporters, Attorney General Bill Barr, has said that there is no evidence of the widespread voter fraud that Trump has been screaming about. And that's gotta be especially humiliating for Trump. Because you realize up until now, Bill Barr has always had his back. But now it's like gone. This must be like when you roll up at a bar fight, like, yo, you sorry ass bitches done messed up. If you think you can take on me and my boy, Bill, yo, Bill, you just, yo, Bill. All right, now when I said sorry ass, I was saying sorry ass bitches. But if Trump knows he's going to be dragged out of the White House soon, at least he's planning to do it in the Trumpiest way possible. And let's find out how Trumpy in another edition of Go Big and Go Home. weirdest quirks of being an American president is having the power to pardon anyone for any federal crimes. Sort of like a cheat code for America's justice system. And it looks like President Trump is going to spend the next two months mashing those buttons. President Trump may soon wield the power of the pardon in unprecedented ways. Multiple sources say the president is weighing whether to preemptively pardon family members and several of his close associates. Among the names the president has discussed behind the scenes, the oldest three of his five children, Don Jr., Eric, and Ivanka, as well as his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Sources tell ABC News the president's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, is also among those who in recent weeks directly asked President Trump for a preemptive pardon, though Giuliani he denies it. Let's just break down uh, crystal clear what's being considered here. We're talking about pardons being issued before the president leaves office for people who've not even been charged with the crime. A preemptive get at a jail free card before a crime has even been committed, possibly for friends, family, even the president himself. Oh, guys, that is adorable. Trump is pardoning his kids and his house pets. And he's not even pardoning them for anything specific. Trump is just handing out pardons like they're gift cards. I figured I'd let you pick your own crime, so enjoy. Do something crazy, you know, live a little. Of course, the big question now is, can Trump legally pardon himself? Because you see, no one knows for sure. But I actually want Trump to try it, just because it'll be fun to see how he'll do it. You know, he'll probably be in the mirror like, I hereby pardon you. No, I pardon you. Stop pointing at me. I'm trying to pardon you. You're pardoned. You're so good looking, but you're pardoned. And before you say, oh, typical Donald Trump, only in it for himself. Well, hey, that's not true. It turns out that anyone may be able to get a pardon from Trump for the right price. 
The White House is investigating a potential bribery scheme involving presidential pardons. It was revealed in heavily redacted court documents pertaining to a search warrant of several offices. The investigation seems to involve at least two individuals who, quote, acted as lobbyists to senior White House officials without registering as lobbyists, quote, to secure pardon or reprieve of sentence for a person who appears to be known to investigators, but whose name has been redacted in these newly unsealed documents. The investigation also involves an alleged offer from someone whose name had also been redacted of a, quote, substantial political contribution in exchange for a presidential pardon or reprieve of sentence. The documents do not name President Trump or any other White House officials, nor do they say whether anyone in the White House knew about the alleged scheme. Whoa. So there was already controversy over Trump's pardons and now bribery might be involved as well. Basically, Trump managed to shove one of his scandals in the middle of another scandal. So impressive. Now, to be clear, all we know is that someone apparently offered to bribe Trump with a campaign contribution in exchange for a presidential pardon. We don't know if Trump actually pardoned the guy. We don't know if he considered it or if he even heard about it, all right? We don't know what Trump did. I will say this though, after knowing him for this long, I think we can assume that my man is not gonna turn down some pardon cash. If anything, I think we should be impressed that he hasn't started targeting Instagram ads to former felons. So that's where we are right now. President Trump is trying to stay in office, but if it doesn't work out, it looks like his plan is to just pardon everyone in his inner circle on his way out the door. And whether that is constitutional or not, we don't know. But what I do know is Trump won't be trying to escape down a drain pipe at the next sex party he gets busted at. Jokes on you, officers. I pre-pardoned myself. All right, we're gonna take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll find out why the housing system is rigged against black Americans. And Michael J. Fox is still joining us on the show, so stick around. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. So by now, everyone knows the damage the coronavirus can do to your body. It can destroy your lungs, it can injure your kidneys, hell, it can even take down your presidency. But it turns out the pandemic isn't just harming our bodies, it's also harming our homes. Are we headed for another mortgage crisis? The slow motion disaster in America's neighborhoods. With more than 21 million Americans out of work, more and more homeowners are struggling to pay their mortgage. We've seen a big spike in the number of delinquent uh, homeowners since the pandemic began. Right now, 6.6% of all mortgages are in some stage of delinquency. That's 3.3 million American homes, nearly doubling in just nine months. If we don't put money in people's pockets, if we don't extend a moratorium on evictions and, and mortgage foreclosures. We're gonna be seeing millions of people who are homeless in the middle of winter when disease is rampant. We're gonna be seeing people who are being forced to go to work even if they're sick because they need to put food on the table and pay rent. And, and that is unconscionable. Wow, guys, 3.3 million American homes is an insane number. That's like if everybody in Jamaica was suddenly homeless. I mean, they'd probably be chilled about it because they have so much great weed and great weather, but still, it would be very inconvenient. It's truly amazing that the American government, the most powerful nation in the world, has failed its people so badly. I mean, it almost feels like they tried to one-up the damage Corona was doing. I'm going to cause a massive public health crisis. Well, then we're gonna cause a massive economic and housing crisis. 
Damn, you guys are cold. But while the pandemic is causing millions to face a mortgage crisis for the first time, housing instability is nothing new for black people. In fact, it's something African-Americans have been dealing with long before the coronavirus. So let's find out why in another installment of If You Don't Know, Now You Know. It's no secret that white people have had an easier time getting ahead in America. But one of the most important reasons for this might surprise you. For millions, owning a home remains at the heart of the American dream. But many black Americans have been left out. A new report says just 44% of black families own a home, compared to 74% for whites. Owning a home is the way that most people develop wealth. Uh, it is the uh, way that... Uh, for years and years and years, people have been able to pass something on to their, to their children or pay for their education. It's part of the reason the average white family has about 10 times the median wealth of a black family. The gap between white and black homeowners is greater now than it was since before the Fair Housing Act of 1968 when segregation was legal. That's right. The home ownership gap is worse for black people now than it was in segregation, which is insane. I never thought a black guy could be able to say, ah, Jim Crow, those were the good old days. But it makes sense when you realize how owning real estate helps you build wealth. And that wealth becomes generational because home ownership is one of the surest ways for families to pass down wealth. Not Beanie Baby's grandma, but they're still very cute, save them for me. But also like, think about a portfolio. So. Black Americans have had less wealth than white Americans for decades. And a large part of that was because they couldn't build wealth by owning a home. But why? Why couldn't they own homes at the same rates as white Americans? Well, like most things dealing with racial inequality, it starts with the government. During the New Deal, the Homeowners Loan Corporation refinanced more than a million loans, nearly one out of every five mortgages in urban America. Now, the main problem with the Homeowners Loan Corporation was redlining. All of that wonderful government finance was only available to white people. The Homeowners Loan Corporation essentially deemed black people too risky to loan. The HOLC created residential security maps, where the term redlining comes from. Green meant best area, best people, aka businessmen. Blue meant good people like white collar families. Yellow meant a declining area with working class families. And red meant detrimental influences, most significantly Negroes. Saying that neighborhoods were hazardous to lend in because they were quote unquote, infiltrated by Negroes or threatened with Negro encroachment. Man, what a terrible era. When the phrase infiltrated by Negroes could be a term used by the federal government, when it should only be used for a dope ass Migos album. I mean, seriously, do you know how fucked up it is to describe those neighborhoods as infiltrated by Negroes. That's where black people lived. But they made it sound like black people were breaking and entering into their own houses. Oh shit, I'm in. Oh, it's my house. What am I doing? I live here. Although I won't lie, a part of me actually misses how upfront racism was back in the days. You didn't have to read between the lines, you know? Because if you're black now and you're trying to get a loan, they'll be like, well, we, we take a variety of factors into account in the loan approval process. Back then, if a black person walked into a bank, the manager was just like, look alive, fellas. We got a Negro encroaching white women in the vault. Come on, yo. Now, by the late 1960s, courts ruled that redlining was illegal. But there are more subtle ways that black people are still kept from purchasing houses. For example, real estate agents 
who are just really trying to keep neighborhoods just white. Newsday with an undercover project to see whether real estate agents treated prospective tenants who are black any differently than prospective tenants who are white. And they did. A lot. The risks to African Americans in particular of suffering potential discrimination was about 50-50. I've had um, agents invoke burning crosses to dissuade me from buying a home in certain areas. This Newsday footage shows an agent handling one tester who is black and wants to see a house without a pre-qualification letter. I want to, you can try another person, but I don't have the time to uh -huh. do that. But for the white buyer, also with no letter, what is your she shows that buyer too. In other cases, Newsday records agents who appear to be steering minorities towards mixed communities. Every time I get a new listing in Brentwood or a new client, I get so excited because they're nice people. But with a white buyer, the same agent texting him about recent gang killings there. Whew. Those real estate agents got Hot. I would love to hear their feeble excuses afterwards. No, no, no. When I told one buyer the neighbors were nice people and the other one were gang killers, I meant they were nice gang killers, just jobs. And by the way, invoking burning crosses to try and stop a black person from moving into a neighborhood is not only racist, it's overkill. If you want to stop a black person from moving into a home, all you got to do is tell them that their next door neighbor adds raisins to their potato salad. They're out. And the truth is that even though redlining was outlawed as a matter of official policy, it sure looks like the banks are still doing it anyway. Lenders deny mortgages for black applications at a rate 80% higher than that of white applicants. When we do get loans, they're at much higher interest rates or much worse conditions. If you're African-American making more than $100,000, you are more likely to be put into a subprime loan than if you were a white person making less than $35,000. Consequently, Black and brown families were disproportionately impacted by the 2007-2010 housing crisis, being nearly twice as likely as white families to lose their homes. After controlling for education, crime, walkability, homes in black neighborhoods are devalued by 23%, and accumulatively, that's about $156 billion in lost equity. One couple in Florida actually saw their appraisal increase by 40% after they removed any evidence that a black woman lived there. I took down... Um, the family pictures that we had in the home and, you know, basically any markers that there were African-Americans living in the house. Replacing them only with photos of her husband and his white family. When the second appraisal comes back, the value of their house shot up more than $100,000. Think about that. Her home appraisal went up $100,000, $100,000. Getting rid of her family photos did more for her home value than putting in a swimming pool. And again, can we all agree that this is racist? Yeah? Because just having pictures of black family members shouldn't drive down the value of a house. Just because you have pictures of black people? I mean, unless that black person is R. Kelly. And then it's like, I don't care that the basement is spacious. I know what was happening in there. So when it comes to racial discrimination in housing, America has come a long way and there's still a long way to go. But until the government gets serious about racial discrimination in mortgage lending and home selling, well, Leo Deblin has got you covered. Are you trying to sell your home but can't get a good price because you black? You're trying to get a new house, but these real estate agents are keeping you in the poor house. Well, pack that moving van, because Leo's got a plan. Introducing Leo Deblin's home whiteification. 
I'll make your house look so white, they'll think Wes Anderson live in this bitch. I'll throw out all your family photos and replace them with watercolors of boats. I'll even throw in a diploma from Dartmouth. Art history, oof, you know that's white. Your library's gonna get whitified too, with David Sedaris, The Life of Pi, and of course, How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Oh, that's white hot. And nothing says white like adding exposed brick. Man, that's rustic as hell. I'll even whitify your garage. Swap out that 2005 Honda Civic for a kayak, a pair of skis, and a volleyball net that only got used once. Woo! Looking like an L.L. Bean catalog in this bitch. And if you order now, I'll whitify your music collection. Goodbye, Megan the Stallion. Hello, Barbara the Streisand. Leo Devlin Home Whitification. It ain't but $85. You can get that from your mama. Leo Devlin Whitification Institute of Exit 120 by the fairgrounds, next to Foot Locker. All right, when we come back, I'll be talking with author Britt Bennett about writing one of the top books of 2020. And then Michael J. Fox joins us on the show. Stick around. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. So earlier today, I spoke with best-selling author Britt Bennett. We had a fascinating conversation about her critically acclaimed novel that explores the American history of black people who pass as white. Britt Bennett, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, You are truly one of the most prolific writers of our time. And once again, you have written a book that has ascended to the top of the New York Times. And not only that, got into a bidding war where HBO topped out 17 other people, 17 other companies that wanted the rights to this book and HBO wanted out. How does it feel for yourself to, to have 2020 be a great year when it really is like a dismal year? Because it is, it is like that for many people. There's some great moments and it's in the midst of this year. Are you just gonna lie and say all the good things to you happened in 2021? <laughs> I know it feels it feels so wild and it feels so obvious to say that because I think it's true of everybody that this has been such a surreal year. But I think for me, I felt so just lucky um, to have experienced these highs and to have experienced such a warm reception for this book. Your, your book, The Vanishing Half, is truly one of the most amazing stories. You've set the story in, in the Jim Crow South world that has come into DC, let's say. So it's 50 years ago and it's the story of twin sisters who run away from home and then go into a world where although there are twins, they're identical twins, one of them is lighter than the other. And so she chooses a path where she passes as white. And that is literally the jumping off point of the story where I won't lie, when I first read it, I was like, oh, this is gonna be a book about, you know, racism in the South or slavery or this. And then I was like, okay, no, 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 it's about Jim Crow, but it's still, it's still oh, there's gonna be a white man who's, and it's like, no, I, 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 I haven't read many stories like this. It was a beautiful book about black people tackling the issues of race and colorism and the ideas. Why did you choose to frame it like that? It was a really interesting idea. I mean, well, thank you, first of all. Um, I think for me, I wanted to write a story about those nuances within a black community. Um, I think sometimes there's a tendency to think that the more interesting story is is conflict between black and white people. But for me, really, I've always said the most interesting thing to happen to black people is not necessarily white people. Often the more interesting stories and the more complicated stories are within our own communities. So I wanted to 
to think about the effect of colorism, uh, which is a result of white supremacy and it's a result of that type of ideology. But what does this colorism do to people and how does it affect the choices that these characters are able to make in their lives? Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in a country where literally shades determined your life, you know? I, I'm seen as being, oh, I, in, in, during apartheid, it was like, I'm technically superior to my mom and I'm inferior to my dad. And yet we're all in the same family. And, and what I loved about this book is you, you, you write in a way where the characters themselves start to understand how people perceiving them can determine their, their, their way in life. When you think about race and when you're writing about it in the book, is it interesting to rewrite the story of, of, of like a ridiculous thing that was created and then like try to figure out the rules through the eyes of these characters? Yeah, I think that that was one of the things that was so interesting to me was the absurdity of all of it. The absurdity of these rules, the idea of, of what does it e even mean to be black if it's not looking, quote unquote, looking black? Um, what does it actually mean for these characters to be black or to be white? Uh, to what degree are they performing race? Um, and, and how are they sort of creating or, or deconstructing themselves in a different way. So I think writing this book, and, and which is, takes this idea of colorism and really pushes it to a very extreme, um, but looking at it from that really extreme lens gave me a way to kind of see the absurdity of race and all of its, uh, all of its nuances even now and, and when I'm growing up and when I'm alive, which is a very different time period than the book is set. Oftentimes when we read stories, especially in the black community of a black person trying to pass as white, that story's written from a place of judgment. Oh, of course you wanna act like you white, you wanna act like you better, you wanna escape, you wanna be better than us. And in this story, it was more like just a person going like, hey man, I've made these decisions, I grapple with them, and as a reader, we're just forced to live with them grappling with that. Why did you choose to write it in such a way where it's like, there's no, there's no you judging, it's just you portraying what they're going through? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think a lot of passing stories are very moralizing. Um, the idea that the character who passes is deserving of punishment, often death in a lot of these stories. Um, and I think for me first, I just didn't find that interesting to, to condemn somebody or to ask, is it good or is it bad to pass? That was just an uninteresting question. Um, but I think also there's a weird way in which th those stories kind of reaffirm the racial hierarchy by punishing a character who has transgressed in some way. So I, I objected to it from a like a level of interest kind of standpoint, but also from a kind of political and, and moral standpoint. I wasn't interested in judging these characters. I just wanted to think about what are the what, what do you gain and what do you lose in deciding to become somebody new and to leave your community behind and create a whole new identity? Well, I, I honestly, I understand why 17, you know, media companies were bidding for the rights to your book. Um, uh, I, I should have jumped in and made it 18. I'll just add in my two cents. Um, because really, you, you've, you've written a masterpiece. Congratulations. There's a reason it was a bestseller. There's a reason it's going to be turned into an amazing movie or TV series, whatever it is. You've done a, a phenomenal job once again. And I can't wait to read your writing over and over and over and over again. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you, Britt. Look after yourself. Don't forget, The Vanishing Half is available now. Stick around, because when we come back, the legendary Michael J. Fox is joining me on the show. You don't want to miss it. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I had the honor of speaking with award-winning actor and Parkinson's advocate, Michael J. Fox. We talked about his enduring legacy, writing his fourth memoir, and the most difficult year that almost caused him to abandon hope. Michael J. Fox, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Yeah, and nice to, nice to not be there. 
Um, if, if I'm not mistaken, this is your third time technically on The Daily Show in, in, in all its iterations, correct? My, my 20th time on The Daily Show, but it's my, my first time, you're my third host. Wow. I, I had, I had, uh, I had uh, uh, it was Greg Kinner <laughs> and John Stewart and, and then you. So oh, and, nice. you do most of her. I like how you say it like it's a conquest. That's how you said you're like, you're my, you're my third Daily Show host. Um, excited to see what the fourth is going to bring. It, you know what? It makes sense that it's, I'm your third Daily Show host. And it makes sense that you've been on every single show because you've been show business. You had, you know, the years when you were the young guy who was just doing everything and it was amazing. But now you're the guy who's still doing amazing things, but you've got this amazing journey with Parkinson's as well, where you've raised more money than anybody in the world fighting against the disease. When you look at your life, where do you see your achievements? Or is it just one story? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't really think of it in those terms. I'm just glad to be here. I'm just happy to happy to, happy to be around. But um, I, I don't know. I've had a wonderful life. I moved to California when I was 18, and then found myself on a show. Then found myself in Back to the Future. Then found myself married, and then found myself with the child and Parkinson's disease, and and uh, another series, and another. I mean, it's just like life just goes like that, and it's uh, and it's it's cool if you take notes along the way. But it's 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 uh, it, it's been a whirlwind. So I don't know. I mean, I loved uh, I loved being 23 and driving my Ferrari 80 miles an hour to drop down and light, lighting a cigarette. And just like, <laughs> crazy. This is another life. When I see myself like sitting on the back porch with my dog watching rabbits run across the yard, neither one of us wanted to chase. Uh, and, I, and I think about that, that, that kid standing on the barn in Hollywood leading his troops. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's a different life. I feel like, yeah, I feel like you've lived many lives, you know? And, uh, I think it's only fitting that you've written another memoir. I think this is, your, this is your fourth one now, but in the book, what I really found endearing and it makes you want to laugh and there's times where it makes you want to cry is you share how hard it is to stay optimistic. You know, you, you share moments where you go like, actually, I don't know if I'm optimistic every day. Actually, I am depressed. Actually, it's like Parkinson sucks. Actually, life isn't always easy. Talk me through why you decided to write a book that had like a different tone to what we've heard from you so much in, in the past. Well, I thought I had a cranky book in me. By the time I wrote a cranky book, Cranky Man, I result in a title. But um, I, you know, what happened was, I, 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 with Parkinson's, I've reached a kind of detente with it. I just, I'm, like, it is what it is. It takes up the room, it takes up. I have room left over to do other stuff. And right. then I just deal with it that way. And, and that is an optimistic point of view. It's just kind of say glass half full. I mean, I saw it as full. And, 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 and continue to live my life that way. Then I get this thing, which is a tumor on my spine which they, they found, they said, this is going to paralyze you in short order. Uh, we got to take it out. But a lot of guys didn't want to take it out. Uh, I found this doctor in, in, in Baltimore, Johns Hopkins, by Dr. Cedar, who was great, who said, I'll take it out. But I can tell you why those other guys didn't want to take it out. Because who wants to be the guy who paralyzes Michael J. Fox? So I said, that's funny. I gave the balls to say that to me. You're the guy. Here's the knife. And uh, he did that. So, and, and that was fine. I did relearn to walk again. I mean, literally learn the mechanics. And, of walking again and, and all that stuff. And, and, and finally got to where, long story short, to get, finally got to where I was alone after the first time in months. I had no AIDS, no, nobody hanging off me. Right. And I was walking down my hallway in my, my apartment, feeling like a big shot. Walked into the kitchen, slipped on a tile, fell down and shattered my humerus and, uh, and, and just mutilated it. And, uh, and, and I was laying on the floor with his mail arm and he just went, okay, put a, put a, put a, put a, Put a shiny face on this. Make this happy. <laughs> this, 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 this just sucks. This only sucks. And then it sucks some more. And after that, it sucks. This is not good. 
And um, and I and I at the beginning a whole conversation I started having with myself about about had I been had I like put up optimism and panacea had I had I said that I had I waited for me had I commodified hope right had I had right. I had I made this a thing when it, when it's not a thing it's it's a thing you feel the thing you arrive at it's optimism um it's it's an action it's not a, it's not a, it's not a word it's not an idea I started to look at what what brought me to optimism in the first place uh-huh. and what uh-huh. it was about optimism that was where was my default mode that is always been the standard for me and I, and I i did all kinds of things i i, I found myself thinking about mortality and fear and uh, um uh just uh opportunity and, and what i came to was acceptance and gratitude if you have if you have gratitude if you have gratitude in everything some piece of gratitude about some element or something then, then, then it's then, then uh, optimism survives. Wow. Because it feeds wow. on that. It feeds on gratitude. Before I let you go, I wanted to talk to you about the work that you have done that I think few human beings would even dream of being able to do in any field. And that is, I think you've put over a billion dollars into Parkinson's research. You've helped raise this money. Do you, do you know how close we are to seeing a cure? And do you think that we'll see a cure within your lifetime? What, what are some of the leaps that you've seen in the work that you've done that have given you hope? I, I don't know that it'll make a big difference in my life because I've been so much, I mean, basically too many miles in the car already. I mean, I've, I've, I've run this baby out. There's no get putting a new engine in it. Science is hard and, and we didn't realize this. Like if you told me we were gonna have 20 years, raise a billion dollars and not have the cure yet, when I started, I might have, I might have said, ah, I don't believe we think this. But, but the work that we've done in these 20 intervening years has been really important, has been really important work. Uh, accessing, uh, accessing data, uh, uh, whether it's uh, um, through, we have a thing called the, uh, the biomarker initiative. Uh, we're also finding new ways to, 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 to get in the brain and, and to, to, to get visuals, to, to, get, uh, to be able to see where, how the officer nuclear, for example, a protein that folds and, and manipulates and damages the, uh, the, the, the brain tissue. Uh, we're solving that way, way to image that. So, so we're working on all these big problems, and one day it's going to crack. It's going to be like this is the right combination of glue and pine cones. It's going to make it all happen. I like that. That's the best description for science. One day the glue and the pine cones will will, will meet, and we'll have the cure for what we need. Um, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for thank you making, making me. Uh, your third Daily Show host, and thank you for being my first Michael J. Fox. I appreciate you. Uh, send my love to the family, and um, we'll uh, we'll have you back for the fifth memoir. Great. Don't break any more arms. Look after yourself. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be taking it easy. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Hey, I appreciate it. No Time Like the Future is available now, and you can go to michaeljfox.org to learn about his work to eliminate Parkinson's disease. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, as you may have heard, there is an important runoff election coming up in Georgia. And if you're watching this from the Peach State, the deadline to register to vote online for that election is next Monday, December 7th. Now, if you're not in Georgia, you can still help out by supporting groups like 18 by Vote that are trying to work to engage young people to vote, especially the estimated 23,000 young people in Georgia who were not eligible to vote in the general election, but are eligible to vote now on January 5th. So, If you're able to help out and you want to support the cause, then please check out the link below. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, wear a mask, and remember, 
If you're going to an illegal sex party, first make sure that your drain pipe can support your weight. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.